0: To study theology is not so much an academic endeavor as it is a relational endeavor. It is the study of God himself, what he has revealed to us about his character and his nature, who we are and how we connect with him. And these foundational Christian doctrines are not something new with our generation. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has been built upon the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and prophets as written in God's word. When we do theology, we are joining together with the generations of the church that have gone before us in declaring the timeless truths of God. Let's go. Hey, uh, last summer, uh, my family and I went to Lost Lake. I don't know how many of you guys have been to Lost Lake, but it's on the other side of Mount Hood. And uh, it's beautiful. You can go paddleboarding, you can go camping kind of around the lake, you can rent cabins and all this stuff. And so one of the nights we decided we were going to barbecue right on the lake, um, right next to the lake, not in the lake, and it Doesn't not usually as effective. We're going to barbecue right next to the lake and watch the sunset together. And what we witnessed as that sunset behind Mount Hood, it just took our breath away. Um, Pictures never do justice, but but this is a picture of the sunset that night, and it just was. I I just sat there and I was just like, "We live in such a beautiful place." There was a couple behind us that we were having conversation with, and they were from Texas. And as the sun started to set, they just looked at us and they were like, "How are we here right now?" (laughs) Like all nobody's on their phone, nobody's having conversation. Everybody's just sitting in awe at the beautiful creation that surrounds us and, and getting a glimpse of its majesty and its beauty. This is because God created the world to be a display of his glory. And what, when we look around at his created world, that's what we get a glimpse of and that we see in a powerful way. And so what we're gonna look at today as we're getting ready to kind of wrap up our theology studies, we're gonna look at anthropology, which is the study of humanity. In particular, we're going to be looking at how we love God's creation. And so according to the scriptures, creation it's a gift from a loving creator God. From the bodies we inhabit, the air we breathe, the sun we bask in, the food we eat, the flowers we pick, the water we drink, the ground we walk upon, the pets we love, the pleasures we enjoy, and the destinations we visit on vacation, life is filled with good gifts for us to steward and enjoy. And, and it should draw in us something out that we want to worship. So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Genesis 1. We're going to look at the creation story. So you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 1, or you can follow along as I work through the passage on the screen. But here's what we see. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So brilliantly, the Bible opens with the one true eternal God as both author and subject of history and scripture. Sometimes we read the Bible, and we think the Bible is about us. We use language like, oh, it's, you know, a manual for life. You know what the Bible is? The Bible is about God. And guess who the main character of life, the story of life is? It's not you. It's God. And and we have to center around that everything begins with with him and what he's done and his goodness, and it gets this gives us this glimpse. And so we want to walk in obedience to him. The the doctrine of creation, it's foundational theology in which we build our lives upon. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. Now, th- there's a couple words that are used as you're working through Genesis 1 um, around language or made. Uh, the first is the word bara, And what it means is, it, we translate it as created, and it means to create from nothing. But there's another word that's used in Genesis 1. It's the word asha, which means uh, to form or fashion out of something that is already there. So if you were to look at Genesis 1 holistically, you see these word b- both these words used in different places. Now, bara again speaks to God creating out of nothing. He creates the universe out of nothing. He creates human beings that did not exist previously. He created animals that did not exist previously. But there's also this word asha, which means that he made or formed out of what he has already made. And what's beautiful is he's actually integrated into you and I the ability to asha. So all the plants All the animals, all of humans are able to come along and we're able to procreate, to participate in that way. Now, we can't create something out of nothing. It doesn't matter how creative you are. If you're like, I build my own house, like that's amazing, okay? That's incredible. I I couldn't even figure out how to pay rent, you know, and that's amazing. You can build your own house, but you didn't make the materials. To build your own house. You went to Home Depot or Lowe's or your neighbor's backyard and got the materials, you know, to, to build this. So, so we, we come along, but what I want you to see and understand is that God created the heavens and the earth, the skies and the land. God created everything. Thanks. This phrase, heaven and earth, it means sky and land, and it's a Hebrew idiom for all things Everything, including space, time, mass energy, and the laws that govern God established and created. And then he starts to form and fill all of life on this earth out of what he has already created and made. And so we see this pattern, this rhythm of days one through three he's forming and days days four through six he's filling. So look at it, day one, he's forming. Darkness and light separated. Sky and water separated. Dry land and waters separated and then he starts to fill. He fills the heavens with the sun and moon and stars. He fills the sky and the water with fish and birds, and then he fills the dry land with plants and animals, and then day seven, he rested. And I just, we have to establish this off the bat, that it is God who created out of nothing, and then he comes, and he intentionally forms you and I in the world that we So he creates out of nothing, and he's also this brilliant, specific, intelligent designer of all things. And so when we talk about the doctrine of creation, one of the big questions that comes up with is how and when did God create the earth? It's a viable question to ask and to wrestle with it. And 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 the reason I want to address it is because this actually becomes a barrier for a lot of people that they're like, wait a minute, I can't believe in the creation story because it seems to contradict and encounter what science says, okay? And so let me just say this off the bat. When it comes to science in the Bible, you guys, science is the study of the observable world around us. It makes hypotheses and observations in order to make sense of the beautiful world that God has created. Studying our world through a scientific lens is wonderful and should push us into deeper understanding of and love for God's beautiful creation. And so if you find a place where there seems to be a contradiction or a conflict between science and the Bible, one of two things is happening. One, either your reading interpretation understanding of the Bible is actually incorrect, or our interpretation or a, hypotheses of what science has observed is in, incorrect. That There are certain questions that that naturalism and science cannot answer. This is why Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant human beings to ever live, when they ask him about the origin of life itself, this is what he says. He said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. What he, what he, what's so ironic about this is he didn't believe in God, but he's like, you know, logically speaking, there's really no other viable answer. I don't believe in him, you know? And then, so we open the scriptures and we're like, we have an answer for you, Stephen, you know, in the beginning, God. Th- this is the foundation of what that looks like. And so we ask this question, okay, uh, about h- how and when did God create the earth? And what I need you to understand is there's actually a lot of viable views and understanding of the age of the earth. And I just kind of want to walk you through them. A couple weeks ago, I introduced you to something that I, call, I like to call the umbrella of orthodoxy. And what I mean is there is variance within f- sound, foundational Christian views that we can under, there's things we have to agree upon and then there's things that we can wrestle with and it's good and we can hold open-handedly, okay? So when it comes to this idea of the age of the earth, we actually don't specifically know. It could be billions, it could be millions, it could be thousands. If you think it's hundreds, you should um, work on your math a little bit, okay? It's probably, not, it's probably not a viable option. But here's what I mean. You can actually hold to these views while still holding to Scripture. And let me just walk you through this, okay? Um, so there's a few different theories. One of them is old earth, okay? And here's, here's how this breaks down, is it tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning he created everything. And then there's an unknown period of time, and then he starts to go through the seven days, of making life on earth and, and forming and shaping. And so there is actually um, this this holds to scripture. It holds that God has made everything, it holds to these these six days of, of creation. But there there can be a gap in there that we that that we don't know that explains why when we try to observe the age of the earth, we don't know where it's at. But then there's also new earth, okay? And and, and new earth theory, you want to pull that up for me. New earth theory essentially says that God created in six literal days, okay? And so how do we justify if it was 6 24-hour time periods? How do we justify what we observe as, you know, it seems like the earth is actually older than that. Well, it could be a number of things. One, uh, maybe our, our scientific observations aren't 100% accurate. Things like carbon dating, we we we're trying to speak to and observe something that has previously happened. So maybe we're off on that a little bit. But also, it it doesn't it doesn't seem irrational to me that God could make the earth mature. And what I mean by this is, when he made Adam, did he make Adam as a baby? No, when he made Eve, did he make Eve as a baby? No, they were mature. And so when he made the rest of creation, you think about like a tree. Like my son like loves going up to trees and a branches cut off and he's like, this is, you can see the rings that determine how old that tree is. And so my son, oh, it's this many years old. Do you think that God, when God made trees, he didn't just make seeds, he made trees. And so there was a maturity there to the earth already. So it's completely viable that when he makes the earth itself, there's pictures and signs that point towards its maturity and its age. That is not outside of scientific observation. Is that That is not outside of Scripture. There's even another category, um, which would be looked at as called day age. God created in six time periods, because it tells us in Scripture that to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, okay? Now, um, there's... There's all kinds of interpretations of this and understandings. But what I want you to see is you can be biblically faithful to the text while also holding differing views. And these aren't things that we need to divide or argue or split over. And if you find yourself as somebody who's like, man, what's kept me from actually believing and following scripture is some of these things that I've learned in, you know, in school and in education or studied online, I don't want those to be barriers to you. You can hold to foundational Christian uh, cre- creation theology and still hold to your understanding of these things, but here's where we go outside of orthodoxy. Um, on one side, where we have closed handed creationists, and and what I would say describe that is, you they say you have to hold to a specific age of the earth, or you don't hold to the authority of Scripture. I'm sorry, that that is that is actually an unbiblical uh, view that you're you're putting on somebody else. Um, saying they are denying Scripture if they have a different interpretation of these things. We need to not do that. But on the other end of the spectrum, that is a complete contradiction to creation theology is is what would be categorized as scientific naturalism. And scientific naturalism speaks to two different things. One, uh, the Big Bang is what started the universe, and they can't speak to what started that. They can't speak to um, how, it, you know, how it happened. There's you know about heat and energy and it was you know really small and then it exploded. Like and and that actually contradicts what we see in Genesis one. What does Genesis one say? Yeah that God is the Big Bang, right? Yeah, the universe did start at one point. God said, let there be light, right? And he created these things, and so that's the moment of that. The other thing that actually contradicts what we read in the Bible is one species evolving into another, what would be called macroevolution, that we all started as this primordial ooze, and that actually contradicts what we find in the scriptures. Now I'm not speaking to microevolution, where you know survival of the fittest and adaptations. That that we, we observe that we can see that. But saying one species no, God created intentionally, He created the species of the earth and He created human beings purposefully in these areas. Uh, think of it naturalism this way. Uh, renowned Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, he summarizes this worldview like this. He says, Man in the, is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. No heroism no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. Like, I'm sure this guy was a lot of fun at parties. You know what I'm saying? Like, jeez, man. He goes on, this is what he says, that all the labors of all, all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only the firm foundation of the unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. That is brutal. But ultimately, life outside of intentional creation, that's where it should logically lead us. There was no intentional beginning. There was no creator, and there is no life after death but here's the thing the authorities the authors of the scripture teach us that the world was intentionally designed by a creator in a way that is beyond what can be explained or observed and that we are more than high functioning meat robots evolved from primordial ooze amen you are intentionally created by your creator and so what do we hold to as christians here's the foundational things here's the three first the triune god of the Bible is the creator of all things. Second, humans were formed by God on purpose for a purpose. And third, all creation exists under God's rule for God's glory. So let's look at these. Uh, the triune God of the Bible is the creator of all things. Bible teaches, us, teaches us that the creation in general and human life in particular were made by God, belong to God, exists for God, and are restless apart from him and will return to him. We are created for relationship with God and we are hopeless outside of that. God created our universe, why did he make it? It was a display of his glory. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 19:1: the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Why did God create all that we see? It's a display of his goodness and his majesty and his love and his glory. I want you to see this picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, okay? I've seen pictures like this before, and it's become one of those things that, like, over time, you're just used to. This is a photo of a galaxy, okay? But, but this is what rocked me in the last couple of years as they've gotten more and more detailed. As they zoom out and zoom out, every single one of these specks that you see is a galaxy, with a star a sun planets moving around it's magnificent it's absolutely it takes my breath away when I see this now you look into the sky if you were you were out in the middle of the woods and you looked up in the sky and you saw a bunch of specks of light I used to I grew up and I think oh that's a star that's cute that's wonderful but when I get a glimpse of it this is a glimpse of God's glory he is revealing how big and mighty and wonderful he is. Go ahead and bring the lights up. How magnificent he is. This is why Augustine put it like this. He says, but where in all the varied moments of creation is there any work of God which is not wonderful? Were it not that through familiarity these wonders have become small in our esteem? What is he saying? He's saying we've just become used to these things, Right? Like it's just, we look in the sky and we're like, okay, yeah, there's stars. There's entire galaxies and it's a display of God's magnificence and his glory and should cause us to worship. Nay, how many common things are trodden underfoot which if examined carefully awaken our astonishment. Our entire universe from the stars in the sky to the wildflowers in the field to the fingerprints on your hands are a display of God's glory his majesty and his power, but we've just become used to them and we kinda just move along. This is one of the reasons I love kids. Because kids have this wonder, don't they? Like they point out things, you know, I've shared before about my son and he just has this love for creatures. Things that I would, like, if I saw them, I would call the bug guy. You know what I'm saying? You know, he's like, we need ortho to come take care of this, right? And Dax is like, look at this. This is magnificent. Recently, he's he's become, he's come into um, really interested in, like, saltwater reef aquariums, right? Like a nine-year-old does, you know? No big deal. So he found this place online. He's like, Dad, we got to go see it. I was like, okay, like we'll go see it. That sounds fun. It's called Woody's Seahorse Aquarium in Portland. All right, and so uh, I was like, Wednesday after school, we're getting in the car and we're gonna go drive down there. Okay, and so he gets in, and as we're leaving, I we tell my wife Jesse and daughter Nova, hey, this is where we're going. You guys want to come? They're like, absolutely, that sounds fun. Like, and so we drive. And you ever, uh, you ever been following your directions? You know, Siri's telling you where to go, and you're like. You're supposed to be getting close, but you think it's giving you the wrong directions because you look around. You're like, there's no way this aquarium shop is here. I'm in a neighborhood. And so literally, it tells me where to pull in, and I pull in, and I pull up to this giant blue garage attached to a house with a handmade sign outside that says, Woody's Seahorse Aquarium. But at this point, we've driven 40 minutes. I'm not turning around, you know what I'm saying? So we get out of the car, and I look at my family, and I just say, listen, guys, if this is our last moment together, <laughs> I just want you to know I love you. And we walk up to this door, right? It says open, right? And we walk up to this door, and we walk into one of the most glorious scenes I've ever witnessed in my life. All Yes, it was a garage but all throughout this garage are some of the most incredible reef aquariums I've ever seen. Like literally, we're just like going, we're like, look at these seahorses. Look at these anemones and these clownfish. And there's this glow and this vibrancy. And we're just, we're just caught in awe. Things that we would just walk past on a normal basis. Yet it's this display there in that sketchy Portland neighborhood garage. You guys, we got a glimpse of God's glorious magnificence. If we would but stop and observe. See, this is all of creation. It is God putting his glory on display. You guys, when you taste good food, you are enjoying God's good creation that he made for you. When you go for a hike at Angel's Rest and you overlook the gorge, you are enjoying God's good creation. When you swim in the warm waters of Hawaii or freeze your face off, on the coast of Oregon, (laughs) you are enjoying God's good creation. When you sit by the fire roasting marshmallows or bundle up with a good book reading to the sound of rain on a rooftop, it is enjoying God's good creation. And when we enjoy God's creation, we glorify its creator. What I need you to see is he made these things, all of this for you to enjoy And when you enjoy and you stand in awe and you look in magnificence, he is worshiped in that. We do not worship creation, but in enjoying creation, we are worshiping its creator. You see that? It's powerful. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He says, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by his glories being rejoiced in. That we would actually enjoy God made the world that he might communicate and the creature might receive his glory, both with the mind and with the heart. He that testifies his having an idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his praise of it and his delight in it. God created all of creation as a display of his glory. And how do we glorify and worship him in it? By enjoying it, by observing it and praising him for it. Second, humans were formed by God on purpose for a purpose. What I need you to understand is that humanity is the pinnacle of all creation. Look at Psalm 139. The psalmist puts it like this. He says, for you created my inmost being, your personality, your passions, it was created on purpose by God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You are not just you know, a conglomerate of genes. God knit you together. He made you purposely. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. What works? The works of making you. I know that full well. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came. Came to be. Listen, everything about you is sacredly crafted by your Creator. From your gender to your race to your height to your personality and skill set, God made you on purpose. And we've gotten to this point where we start to criticize ourselves. I had this friend who was telling me a story about the season of life where he just he hated everything about himself. He was struggling with his identity. He was struggling with how he looked. He was struggling with work. He was struggling with purpose and calling all these things. And he would sit down with his wife, and he would just, conf- he would just share these things. And he was just like, I am this, and I am that, I am this. And one night she looks at him, and she goes, stop insulting my husband. Stop bashing on the man that I chose to marry and love. And I wonder if some, there's moments in our lives where we're doing that and we're just criticizing ourselves. And why am I this way? Why don't I look that way? Why am I not like him or like her? And our creator is standing up there and saying, stop insulting my creation. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I made you on purpose for a purpose. This is what the creation theology tells us, that you are not an accident God made you the way that you are. He made us on purpose, then he gave us a purpose. What do we see the purpose? We see it in Genesis 1:26 and 28. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the round. Along the ground. What is our purpose? We see it right here in this scripture. First, be fruitful and multiply. Theologically, having sex and making babies in the context of God ordained marriage is a biblical command. There are not enough amens to that, you guys. You kidding me? This is God's design, right? Have you walked through these hallways, right? Like, making children is biblical. This is the most biblical church I've ever been in. You guys are you guys are like rabbits. (laughs) It's beautiful and it's good. God made us to with the potential to actually fill the earth, and we glorify Him and we honor Him in that. In the raising of children and the multiplying, the filling of the earth. Second, to subdue creation. The word subdue it means kavash. It's the Hebrew word kavash. It means to rule. It's it's royal language. It means we partner with God. He made all things. That He designed all things, and He designed you to partner with Him in ruling over His creation, and caring for and loving His creation. And what we see in creation theology is that God made humanity on purpose for a purpose. And so, and let me—I I need to address this. This is so critical. I have to be clear about this in today's day and age in our culture. And I, I need to speak about gender and sexual identity, but hear me on this. I'm not trying to speak, it, speak to it from a political standpoint, but from a theological standpoint. I'm not a politician. I'm a pastor. And what I need you to hear is that male and femaleness is sacred. You're not, it's not a byproduct of society. It's a gift from our creator. And it's part of how we actually reflect God in his image. What it says, in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. There's beauty in you being a woman. There's wonder in you being a man. It is not a byproduct, not an accident. And what's happening is we're having an entire generation being lied to, being told that the creation gets to determine its identity and purpose rather than the creator. And now we have an entire generation of kids being affirmed and celebrated when they say something is wrong and broken inside of me. I'm experiencing pain. And we respond with permanent medical solutions. And the medical community is blindly and cruelly altering the future of these children permanently preventing them from participating in part of their God-given purpose for this life on earth. And it is wrong and it is evil. This is not ambiguous in the scriptures. God made you and your children exactly who they are and how they're meant to be. And what we need is not a cultural society telling us these things. We need a theology of God's design. And again, hear me, this is not political. This is theological. This is why we have to start with God and who he is. And it breaks my heart for the coming generation. I read a stat the other day that just rocked me. It's talking about Gen Z. Was anybody born from 97 to 2004? And I asked somebody, I I was like, hey, I I read this stat, and I want you to guess one out of how many of Gen Z would identify within the LGBTQ community. And they were thinking about their upbringing and their high school, and they're like, I don't know, maybe one in a 1,000? They're like, not even close. Like, one in 100, really? They're like, nope. One in 10? I, I said, it's one in five. It's one in five. And, and what I need us to understand, because we make it this battle, and we make it this war between church and culture, okay, that this movement in our society with transgenderism and redefining sexuality it is not an attack of our culture on the church. It's an attack from Satan on humanity. Amen. It's an attack of the evil one on God's good design. You ever heard the term gaslighting? Okay, it's kind of built a little bit of momentum. It comes from a, a, actually a play in the 1930s where this husband would go around the house adjusting the gas lights, uh, making them brighter and more dim. And he was doing it as an emotional manipulation so that his wife would question her entire reality. Like, no, they're not dimmer. No, they're not brighter. If you just make someone question their reality enough, they they buckle under the pressure of it and they're like, I don't even want to, I don't even know what's true anymore. Our entire society is being gaslit right now. We are being manipulated to, to be told like, no, we can't know truth. We can't know what's good. And 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 we're being told this lie. And here's part of the law, that you have to either affirm or hate. You only have one choice in these areas. But here, listen to me. As a follower of Jesus, surrendered to the authority of Scripture, you can do neither. And here's what I mean. You cannot affirm. You cannot affirm. Why? Because of the Bible. From the very beginning of creation to the teachings of Jesus. People are like, Jesus never addressed. Jesus absolutely addresses. Look at Mark chapter 10. He absolutely addresses this. To the teachings of the New Testament, there is one message, and we can only faithfully hold to Scripture if we hold to God's teaching on gender and marriage. But you know what else we cannot do? We cannot hate. You know why? Because of the Bible. Because every single person in your life is created in the image of God. They are to be loved, they are to be cherished, they are to be valued, and we cannot fall into this narrative where we're like, oh, we either have to blindly affirm what God has said is not good, or we have to be so vehemently against them that we mistreat them. That is not the way of Jesus. We have to be people that come around in truth and love. Francis Schaefer puts it like this. He says, all men bear the image of God. They have value not because they are redeemed, but because they are God's creation. They are created, God's creation, in God's image. That is where value comes from. It comes from creation theology. They bear the image of God. And so as followers of Jesus, as the church, we have a role to play in partnering with God to help the rest of his creation flourish, including the rest of humanity. And we must do everything that we can to lovingly cultivate a society that will flourish. And what I want to say as a church is that we have to be a church where anyone can enter in and everyone needs the same thing. And you know what we all need? We all need the gospel of Jesus. We all do. And the gospel comes in two waves. You know what the first wave of the gospel is? I'm more sinful and broken than I ever dared to admit. And you know who that applies to? Every single person in this room. There is not a single person in this room that is more disconnected or less disconnected to God because of their sin. All sin separates, and so when we start to create these categories and these hierarchies of there are certain sins that we're going to address and certain sins we're going to ignore, that is not good and is not loving. And if it becomes this, if we become a church that says, you know what, this is offensive, so we're just going to affirm this and we're going to change the scriptures. Guess what else? That is not loving. We all need the gospel. And the gospel comes in two waves. The first wave, I am more broken and sinful than I ever dared to admit. But here's the second one. I am more loved in Jesus than I ever dared to hope. He is the hope. He is what we need. And so as a church and as a community, we have to be a place that says you are welcome here. We're going to point you to Jesus. We're going to call out sin in each other, because we're all broken. We're not going to just blindly affirm one another, because, because calling out is offensive. No, absolutely not. But we will not create a barrier between humanity and God when Jesus came to bind that together. You hear me on that? And so we, we hold to scripture, and every single human being on this planet, you are called to love with both grace which is unmerited favor and truth, which is unaltered reality. And we do this because all of creation exists under God's rule for God's glory. There's this moment where this man, Job, has had everything ripped away from him. And he starts to just, he has this conversation with God and he starts to question God about all the ins and outs and all the different pieces and how could you do this? If you were good, why would you say this? And it's almost kind of like us being like, God, if you're a good God, why would you allow this? Or why would you put a boundary here? Or why would you say this here? You know what God says in response? Okay, this is Job 38. He says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Where where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? He's like, I created all of this. That means only I know what is good. And what is right for you? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Cause the dawn to raise in the east? Have you ever made daylight spread to the ends of the earth? To bring an end to the night's wickedness? And he just goes on and on and on. And what he does is he keeps bringing them back to the foundation of the earth. All through chapter 38, all through chapter 39, God's like, where were you? Did you contain the sea when it was birthed? Did you create humanity? Where were you? And then the beginning of 40, he ends this monologue and he says, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? And then it, in the Hebrew, it tells us that he created the first ever microphone just so he could drop it, right? <laughs> it's just this moment. But here's what I wanted you to see. And I, please hear grace and truth and love in this. We are called to submit and surrender to our creator's divine instruction. He wants good things for you. He wants you to flourish. He loves you more than you could ever love yourself and anyone else on this planet could ever love you. You know how he proved it? He entered our world. This is the power of Jesus. See, he is not some distant deity that created everything and then was like, go for it. He's a creator that loves us so much. He gave us a world to enjoy. He created us out of an outpouring of his love and his grace, an expression of his goodness for the praise of his glory. And it's the only hope that we have. Atheistic philosopher Richard Dawkins, he was asked if his naturalistic, atheistic view of reality made him depressed. And this is what he says. He's, He's like, I don't feel depressed about it. But if someone does, that's their problem. Maybe the logic is deeply pessimistic, but look, the universe is bleak, cold, and empty, but so what? Here's what I need you to hear in the doctrine of creation. We have a better answer, don't we, to the pains and fears of this world. We have the person of Jesus. Jesus is the so what in the midst of our pain and brokenness. A God who entered into his creation and humanity to rescue. See, the doctrine of creation, it sets the stage for the coming of Christ. A God who becomes a man, who is our creator amidst his creation. It says that God took on flesh and blood, the message translated, and moved into the neighborhood. That's the kind of God that we have. He entered our pain to make a way between heaven and earth. Not to say, man, that is bleak and empty and broken. Let's start over somewhere else in the millions of galaxies I've built. And he says, no, no, no. I'm going to enter into that brokenness because I love them. I created them to experience an outpouring of my love. And as they receive that, that is how I am glorified and and worshiped. And so Jesus shows up on a rescue mission to save us from the unyielding despair in which we all build our lives upon. And he gives us power in the midst of pain by placing his spirit in us. And he promises, oh, he promises to come back one day. He doesn't say, so what? He says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to give them hope. And just as in Genesis 1 where he takes this barren wasteland, an earth that is empty and void, and he fills it and he prepares it for Adam and Eve, it says that he is preparing a place for us. He will renew creation for all his people. Rather than just saying, so what to our pain. This is the promise of Scripture that he will wipe every tear from our eye, he will heal every wound, he will invite us into his eternal kingdom, and his creation will be fully restored for all of eternity. Lord, we want that. Lord, we need you and your guidance. Some of these things can be so hard. We don't know how to answer, or what to think or what to do, but Lord, would we just keep coming back to you? I, pr- I just pray that for any of us who are just wrestling and feeling pain in this moment, that we would surrender over to you. That we would bring our questions and our fears and our inadequacies to a creator who made us and formed us in your image. And you would meet us with your grace. You would meet us with your truth. You would meet us with your hope and your goodness and your gentleness and your kindness. And we would be experience be able to experience life and life to the full that your son Jesus promised. We pray all this in your name.